and uh, a wonderful song, Why Should I Gain Anything? But uh, we thank God for all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ. Now, so what we want to talk about today is, in a sense, the second part of a series that we're looking at, baptism. It is fair to say that a number of folks thought that the first message didn't really emphasize baptism perhaps as much as it should do, but that was the beginning point that we're looking at. And today I want to talk about a subject which I have concluded in my life, so it's possible that you will conclude in your life as well, is one of the biggest topics, one of the biggest subjects, one of the biggest areas of misunderstanding, perhaps a lack of teaching that we ever have, that I have certainly had in my life. You see, we talk about the fact that Jesus died for me. And we rejoice in the fact that Jesus died for me. We talk about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And we talk about the fact that in the resurrection there is power. And indeed, that's what the scriptures tell us. We can't deny that. If there was no resurrection, well, there would be, we wouldn't bother meeting here. Because there would be a tomb. And death would not be conquered. And so we recognize that the resurrection does indeed have power. But listen, friends, there's something in between that's spoken of very clearly, particularly when we talk about believers' baptism, when we talk about the fact that we bury the people in the water, the candidates, those that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and rest assured, it's a fraction of a second, but they are buried. Have we understood what it means to be buried with Christ? That's the message that we're going to look at this morning. That's what we're going to talk about. That's the thing that's given me a, a, a thrill during the course of this week, to realize that I have been battling with sin when what I should have done was make sure that it was buried. And I haven't done so. And so when we begin to understand this, t- this terrifically important doctrine, the doctrine of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, now we begin to understand what it is that helps us in our lives. Are you living a Christian life and you think to yourself, is this it? And I feel nothing. I don't feel any sense of joy, any sense of achievement, any sense of victory. Well, the reason for that is because sin is plaguing me. You're walking around like, I remember at school, uh, Mr. Keating, I can't remember how old I was, we weren't very old, and I remember one day he said, you children, it's like carrying a heavy weight around on my shoulder, and he was talking about the fact we wouldn't listen to what he had to say, we didn't take it in what he had to say, we didn't do our homework, we didn't do all the things that we should have, but you know what, the Christian life is such a burden when we carry our sin around, for some reason we seem to be staggering around with it, when we should have buried it, when we should have deposited it in the grave and the grave is sealed and we don't have to carry it anymore so last week we considered uh, when we looked at uh, acts 2:41, and we saw very clearly that uh, this huge crowd of people they responded to the message that was given and the first thing they did was to be baptized and of course that helped them to understand everything that was being spoken of i'm going to read a few verses if we may just to remind us from romans 6 It's a section of scripture which uh, speaks clearly of uh, baptism, um, the understanding of baptism that uh, we have of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, of being baptized into Christ. And uh, Paul writes and he says, verse 1, chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Have we understood that? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized 
into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. There it is again. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. What's your walk like? Is it still rather like the old one? Do you understand what walking in newness of life is? Well, Paul makes sure that we're beginning to talk about this. He says, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, there it is again. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, our old self, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Very, very powerful words, but words so often miss, missed or misunderstood. Verse 3 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so this morning we're going to look at the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, not his death. We're not going to talk about the resurrection particularly, but we're going to be talking about his burial. And we're going to talk about that intervening part between death and resurrection, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have to confess that uh, I've never spoken on this subject before. And nor can I think of ever hearing a message on the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and really understanding what the implication for us is. And I regret this. And I'm disappointed in myself because all of a sudden I've begun to see how imperative it is that we understand that our old nature, our old life, the sin that we have in our lives is buried, buried in the tomb and it stays there. Our message last week and again this week are essentially about the importance of understanding water baptism, uh, which we define as an outward physical act that portrays an inward spiritual truth. Baptism in and of itself, of course, doesn't save us. I'm very happy to make that statement, but I don't want that statement to in any way belittle the fact that baptism by full immersion is important. It's important because it's stated in Scripture in numerous places. There is a clear understanding that in Scripture, people knew what Paul was talking about when he penned uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 6, for example. And then every time we see coming, people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we often see baptism follows immediately. So to try and underestimate it is usually to try and get yourself off the hook, to say, this isn't about something I need to be involved in. And so we tend to uh, downplay the importance of baptism. But I agree, baptism doesn't save us in any way. We're familiar with the outward physical act. When somebody is baptized in the way that we do it here in this church, and if you've ever wondered what this box is, it's our baptistry. And inside that baptistry, there is a, 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 there's a tank inside the box, and we fill it with nice warm water, and we are able to demonstrate the gospel clearly to those who watch and also to those who take part in what takes place. But the significance is that this is a picture of dying with Christ, of being buried with Christ and being raised 
with Christ. I, Simorum, was crucified with Christ, legally, if I can put it this way, before God. I have died in the person of a substitute. I have been buried with him in order to be raised again to walk in newness of life. The outward physical act is important. Baptism is important. And I want at the end of this short series next week to bring a challenge if you've never considered just how imperative water baptism, baptism by full immersion is for us in our lives. So today, I am buried with Christ. And this is an aspect that, as I've said, we don't perhaps think about as much as we should do. It doesn't feature perhaps in preaching as much as it should do. But it does need to be looked at and we need to consider it very carefully here this morning. Verse 4 says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul says this, that the grounds of our liberation from the demand of the law is that we are buried with him in baptism. So now we're beginning to see that yet again in other sections of Scripture, all of this begins to help us to understand. If you do not feel liberated in your Christian life this morning, if you do not feel the freedom of knowing Christ, it's because of sin. It's because you are carrying around sin which should have been buried. It's because you've not understood that when you died with Christ, you were also able to bury your sin and that you're raised to new life. The old, the sin, doesn't come with you into your new life. That's the message that we have here. That's the picture that we have with baptism. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Paul gives the essential facts of the gospel and they include this, that Christ died for our sins according to what? According to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to what? According to the Scriptures. Now, Paul, we might think, could have written, and he could have omitted the bit about being buried, couldn't he? He could have said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And perhaps we might not miss the fact that he didn't say buried. We could miss it. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't leave it out. It isn't missing. He states very clearly that he was buried. Because this is part of the gospel. This is an intrinsic part of the gospel. I trust that in our deliberation this morning that some of us and you know who you are will feel the liberation from your sin in a way you have never felt before because all of a sudden you realize that you should have buried it and you didn't. And that, of course, is one reason why water baptism is a tremendous opportunity because it reminds us very clearly that it's gone, that it's been buried. So I want to take this in two parts this morning. I'm going to try and, and keep going time-wise, but it's, it's, it's a very, very important subject, so bear with me if we go just a few minutes over. 
So the first thing that I want to talk about is the historical event of the burial of Jesus because there are things that we need to learn from that. Again, it's not often that we have a message uh, on the actual burial of Jesus, what took place. And then the second thing I want to talk about is the significance of us being buried with Jesus as we have come to faith in him. So firstly, let's talk about the historical facts. I realize that there are people here this morning who may not understand the gospel, perhaps as fully as others do. I want to say that if you're here this morning and you're not saved, I'm grateful that you're here because we are going to talk about these things just like we were last week. It's good to have you here, and I hope that what we talk about will enable you to see the power of the Christian life in Jesus Christ. I want to make sure that we don't belittle in any way the commandment in Scripture to be baptized. I don't want to twist it or to redact the Scripture in any way to get you off the hook, as we mentioned earlier. We do need to understand this. And we need to apply it into our lives. Baptism, as I say, is that outward physical appearance, an act that portrays what is taking place with the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. So we talk about the burial of the Lord Jesus himself. And you may be aware of this, but perhaps you're not. That although Jesus was buried in a tomb... The reality is, is that he shouldn't have been. What do I mean by that? Well, the reality is, is that men who were convicted and crucified, as far as Roman law was concerned, their body now belonged to Rome. And their body would be discarded in any way Rome chose to discard it. And the usual procedure and the procedure that would have taken place for the other two men that were crucified on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was that when the time came to take their bodies down from the cross, then they would have been thrown into what was called the Valley of Gehenna, which was essentially uh, just, I think, to the south of Jerusalem, um, this valley where it was just a burning rubbish dump. And all the refuse from Jerusalem was thrown in there. There was a fire that was burning all the time. And that's where the bodies of those that were disgraced and who were executed were thrown. There was no, no respect shown right to the very end. And that is how the body of Jesus should have been treated. That is what would normally have happened. But something changed. Now, why did it change? Why was that not allowed? What was it that stopped this from happening? According to the Scriptures. According to what the Scriptures had to say. This is what could not happen. We know that Jesus was crucified because early on the morning of his crucifixion, the highest Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin Council, met. It consisted of 71 members and they presided, or it was presided over by the high priest. And they met together to pass a resolution to recommend to the Roman governor, this guy has got to die. That was their recommendation. And of course, they made their recommendation based upon trumped up charges 
they even tried to accuse him of terrorism. He was going to pull the temple down. And, you know, nobody would ever do that, would they? I think it was Rachel who mentioned the temple this morning in the time talking to the children. And so the Lord brought that together, which was great, and I noticed that. So thank you. And, and yes, he was, he was being, being accused of, 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 of terrorism and so on. Uh, he was accused of uh, blasphemy because he said, I am equal with God. And they had their charges, and the Jewish law said, this man must die. But because of the Roman Empire, because of the fact that uh, Palestine was an occupied territory, they didn't have the authority to do it themselves. And so they had to come to Pontius Pilate. You know the account. You know the story. We're coming up toward Easter, and we'll go through many of these things again. But they came up with the recommendation that Jesus had to be crucified. Pilate listened to the case that morning. He wanted to get Jesus off his hands. And it just so happened that Herod was in town. Herod was the ruler in Galilee. And Jesus was a Galilean. So Pilate thought to himself, let's just pass the buck. Let's just let Herod deal with it. Herod interviews him. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate then goes out to the crowd and says, what am I going to do with him? And the crowd shout, crucify, crucify, crucify him! His fate was sealed. And so he's handed over. And the nails are driven into his hands and his feet. The soldiers take him to the hill of Golgotha. And at 9 a.m. in the morning, the creator of the world is nailed to a wooden cross. The Sanhedrin must have met early. We know that much. We don't know exactly what time, but they made their recommendation. And the recommendation of the Sanhedrin council was interestingly not unanimous. Out of the 71 members of the council, two men did not agree. And they were prepared to make a stand. They stood up and they were counted. It's tough to stand up and be the minority. But I'm warning you and I'm explaining and I'm saying to us here this morning, all of us are increasingly facing times when we will have to stand up and we will have to make a stand against what our society wants us to do and how it wants us to respond and how it wants us to react. But two of them stood up. The first one was called Joseph of Arimathea and it tells us in Luke 23:50 there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. Actually in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 15, it describes him as a prominent member of the council. So he was influential in the council, and it says that Joseph, a member of the council, a, a good and upright man, had not consented to their decision and action. So there's one vote against. And the other vote was by a man called Nicodemus. Now, we know the story of Nicodemus. He was introduced to us right the way back in John chapter 3. You remember the guy that came to Jesus in the night. We're not sure quite why it was. Perhaps he was afraid. We're not sure. And he was described... As a man 
of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And these two men were friends of Jesus. They knew Jesus. And both of them were prepared to stand up and they voted against the recommendation. They were brave. Now here's the significance. These two men were the only friends of Jesus who knew that Jesus was going to die that day unless Pilate intervened and vetoed the recommendation. They were the only two. Jesus' own disciples had no idea that he was going to die. He had told them on a number of occasions, as we're going to talk about this evening when we come to look at Matthew 16. But they didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. And truthfully, we can understand that, can't we? But they weren't listening to what Jesus had to say. But these two men, they knew. Because they'd seen what was taking place. And so by the time that our Lord was hung on the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning, these two men, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they worked to give him a proper burial. And it says in John 19 that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Friends, there comes a moment when we have to throw caution to the wind. And we have to stand up and we have to be counted. During this time with COVID, there were many churches that went along with the restrictions. And I'm not going to criticize them directly in that sense. But I will say that I was grateful that we graciously did everything we could to be faithful to God. And we kept the doors open and people were able to come and to worship as we did. Maybe we could have done more and in hindsight perhaps. And for Joseph of Arimathea and for Nicodemus, this was their moment. They planned for the burial of Jesus. This is why they were there. This is God's sovereign plan at work in their lives. But of course, the body belonged to the Roman authorities, so they had to be big enough and brave enough to go to Pilate and say, can we take the body of Jesus? It was Pilate's prerogative to allow that to happen. And he did. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And later it says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen, which was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus' body there. Now this is interesting. They took the body of Jesus, placed him in the tomb, 
that no one had been laid in, that was close to where he'd been crucified, and Jesus was buried in a tomb that had been made for someone else. In fact, it had been made for Joseph of Arimathea himself. But why is this important? Is it because it was simply a fluke, luck of history that these two men were there? Is that how God works? I, some of you will feel bad now, but I always struggle when some people say, well, with a bit of luck, it'll all work out, Sim. <laughs> no, it's not with a bit of luck. My mum was particularly uptight about luck, and she would say, we don't have luck. We have the Lord Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if you accidentally say luck to me, don't get too upset about it, but just remember, it's not luck. It's not a fluke of history that happened to have these two friends on the Sanhedrin Council who had the advance notice that Jesus was going to be crucified. No, it's significant. Because the scriptures had prophesied in advance that he would be buried, and the prophecies about his burial were very specific. So we read in Isaiah 53, 9, this is a classic prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus. It describes in detail the effects of the, and, the, and the way the crucifixion would take place. And then it says this, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Now, what does this mean? One commentator suggests a good alternative way to translate this would be to say, his grave was appointed with the wicked, but with the rich man was his tomb. And that makes it very remarkable because it means here that over 700 years before Jesus died, the way that he would be buried was clearly explained. Now, when we pick up a newspaper, we recognize that the newspaper tells us what happened yesterday. You know, that's how a newspaper works, isn't it? It might give some comment about it, but that's how it functions. But could you imagine picking up a newspaper that says, next week, this is going to happen. Now, that, w and you find out that it does. Now, that would be fascinating. And you'd want to get to know the editor, wouldn't you? <laughs> Perhaps, maybe next year, the, the, the newspaper would be fascinating. But here we have a situation where the Word of God brought the prophecy to say what would happen over 700 years before it happened. And it was exact as it would happen. Now, What's the purpose of all this? Well, Paul says in Romans 6, in explaining the meaning of baptism, not only have we died with Christ, been crucified with him, but we have been buried with him. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So, what is the meaning of our burial with Jesus? Well, let me suggest this to you. And I say this graciously and gently, particularly with Marianne here, but there is a finality about burial, isn't there? When someone passes away, the period between their death and their burial is perhaps the most difficult time of all. People talk a lot about the person who has just passed away and of course, quite often they talk in the present tense. 
But once the funeral, once the thanksgiving service takes place, we don't talk in the present tense anymore. It's the past tense now. How old was she? Where did he live? And we have an expression in our English language when something has been brought to completion. We say, hey, it's dead and buried, don't we? Why is it, friends, that we just don't seem to understand that that is the case with our sin? What's wrong with us? And so it is with the burial of Christ. He not only took my sin on himself on the cross. He not only died my death, as we talked about last week, so that I can stand before God. Not only have we died with Christ, but the sin that was the cause of our death, because that's what it is, the sin that is the cause of our death has been buried with him. Friends, it's over. It's gone. In other words, our sin, our guilt, our past is buried. And the reason why I say that many of us don't grasp this is because we go on interacting with our sin for the rest of our life when we've not allowed it to be buried as it should have been buried. We keep playing with it. We keep going back to it. We keep thinking about it. And that's not what God says in his word should happen. What does God do with our sin? Have you ever asked that question before? Our sin is offensive to him in the extreme. Do we understand what it causes? The grief in his heart and in his life. But what does he do with it? Well, there are a number of graphic pictures that are given in the scriptures in which he deals or he tells us how he deals with this sin. And we're going to talk about just six of them this, evening, this, this morning very quickly. There's, there's others, but these are six that just come to mind. So in Micah chapter 7, here's the first one. Verses 18 and 19 say, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sin underfoot. Now listen carefully to this next bit. And hurl all our iniquities into the deepest sea. Lake Ontario is not very deep, is it? When the Titanic sank, it went down three miles. And even that is not a good portray, uh, portrayal of what God has done with our sin and our iniquity. But he says this, he says, it's buried in the deepest sea. Now that should tell us something about the wonderful God that we have. Is that our sin in the past has been buried in the deepest sea. Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch lady who survived at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp, 
She said, speaking to one of the guards, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God takes your sin. Think about it. And he buries it in the deepest ocean. And then she added this bit. And I thought this was wonderful. And he puts a sign floating on a little boat which says no fishing. How many of us go fishing where we've been told that our sin has been buried? How many of us go fishing where we've been told our sin is gone? It's been taken from us and it's been dropped to the deepest part of the ocean. And then there's other people that come along and start fishing there as well. Because they want to, what's wrong with us? We want to dig up the dirt on other people. And God says, I've buried it. Don't look. It's gone. But have we understood this? Have we really understood this? And sometimes we're so conscientious, we're so embarrassed about the fact that we don't deserve what God has done for us that we don't allow ourselves to understand and enjoy the liberty and freedom. Although we don't deserve it, our sin has been buried in Christ. Past relationships that have, been, that have broken. And, and, and we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus and, and all of that is in the past, but we still allow it to wreck our relationship with God. And there's no need. Because it's been buried. It's gone. Here's another verse, Psalm 103, verse 12. David says, As far as the east is from the west, so... Has he removed our transgression for us? So you, you know, you start walking east and you keep going. And you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And that's the way you're going to go. And you're thinking to yourself, well, where in the world has God placed my sin? And you turn around and you start walking west and you keep walking and you keep walking and you don't find it. You just keep going. And, and God has done this. Because he knows that if our sin stays in our lives, it stops us from having that relationship with him. It breaks it. It destroys that relationship with him. And we struggle. And so we keep going and we keep going and it can't come to an end. And that's how gracious God is to us. Third picture, Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen, where he says, you put all your sins behind your back. Now, I don't get this. Do you? I thought God, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Is he not behind him as well as in front of him? To the sides? And yet he says, 
I've put your sin behind me. This is my take on the verse, and if anyone wants to argue with me after, that's fine. I won't argue with you. You can tell me what you think. God puts our sin in a place that doesn't exist. Have you ever thought about that? It doesn't exist. He's everywhere. But that's how much he loves us. He takes our sin and he puts it somewhere that doesn't exist. The fourth one, Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. One of the most wonderful verses in Scripture. Now that phrase is used many times in Scripture or, or variants of it. He remembers our sin no more. It's not that he's got Alzheimer's. It's because he chooses not to remember. He'll never use it in evidence against you. You might try and bring it up, but he won't. Your husband or your wife might try and bring it up, but God won't. Somebody at church might try and bring it up, but he won't. He remembers it no more. And shall I tell you this? I wish we all believed that. But I know we don't all believe that. There are some of us who absolutely don't believe it. And they're judgmental and they'll point the finger at other people and they'll say, well, no hope for them. And so I'm so grateful that God does not remember because he chooses not to. It's a unique ability of God to be able to do this. He never brings it back. He remembers it no more. And it's gone. At the end of a day, a mother called her elder son of the two boys and she said, listen, you've been fighting your brother all day long. You've argued and you've bickered. You need to make it up with him. You need to say sorry before you go to bed. And the young man turned to his mum and said, I'm not going to make it up with him. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. He started it. It's his fault. Remember that conversation in your household? So his mother tries to appeal to the sentiment of the son just a little bit. And she says, just supposing your brother died during the night, wouldn't you be sorry in the morning if you hadn't forgiven him? And the boy thought for a moment, and then he said, all right. All right, I'll forgive him, but if he's alive in the morning. <laughs> you know, I think some of us have that feeling, don't we? God, please forgive me. And he does. But we're scared stiff about the morning. Romans 8 verse 1 is the next one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's say it together. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why don't you all believe that? Why not? There's only one reason. Because you're not in Christ Jesus. Satan's task, Revelation 12.10, is to accuse us. He's not got a very difficult task, has he? <laughs> Let's be honest about it. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy. But that's his task. To accuse us. He accuses us before God day and night. And there's all kinds of junk that he can haul up and remind you of. And that brings us to the next one. There's a picture in the book of Zechariah of a man called Joshua who's standing before God and he was standing dressed in filthy rags and Satan is standing at his right side and he's accusing him. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Then... The Lord said to the angel who was standing before him, take off his filthy rags and put him clean clothes with a clean turban. And then he said to this man, Joshua, see, I have taken away your sins and I have put rich garments on you. But he's standing like many Christians stand. Many people who call themselves believers stand. Satan is at their side accusing, 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 accusing. And the result is, is that they are dressed in filthy rags. And because they're dressed in filthy rags, they feel dirty. They even act as though they are dirty. Yes, they're embarrassed about their dirt. And God rebukes Satan. Satan, get out of here. And then cover him in clean clothes. And you and I are not dressed in the dirt of our own past anymore. What are we dressed in? We're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Why don't you see that? Why don't I see that? Friends, there is therefore now no condemnation. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you about your sin, what does he do? He convicts you of your sin. When the devil speaks, what does he do? He condemns you of your sin. With conviction, he also points the way out of our sin. He doesn't convict us of sin in order to humiliate us or to embarrass us or to condemn us. He convicts us of sin in order to liberate us, to bring freedom. <laughs> he points to the cross. But when the devil condemns, It's like this wet, heavy blanket that's placed over us and we can't move. We went to the Flying Squirrel last week and uh, two hours of jumping up and down on a trampoline, you know, there's only so much a guy can take. But there was one thing made up of a, sort of like a pit that had these, these cubicle bits of foam in it, okay? And you'd sort of like fly off and land in it. Do you know what it's like trying to get out of that pit? 
It's horrendous. There's nothing solid to stand on. You can't even get yourself upright to try and do it. And you feel, you know, what a right idiot. And that's what our sin's like. It's heavy. It can't move properly until we find the rock to stand on. The last verse we're going to look at now is 1 John <coughs> 4, 17, where it says, and this verse is one that can slip your attention very easily. It says this, in this way, love is made complete. So if you've been coming to our Bible studies on Wednesday, you'll know that we're talking about God's love to us and the love that we have to other people. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment. Now, that in itself is incredible. We have confidence on the day of judgment. But here's the answer. Why? Because in this world, we are like him. Now, isn't that strange? You see, this verse is talking about the extent to which God's love is complete among us. That on the day of judgment, we will have confidence because in this world, we are like him. Why are we like him? Because there was a day when Jesus was like me. When he was made sin for me. And when he died, I died. He was my substitute. I died in him. He was buried. We were therefore buried with him. And as Romans 6 says, but we have now been raised to walk in newness of life. That newness of life is now the life of Jesus Christ within us. And we are clothed in righteousness. We have a righteousness that is not our own. This morning, and quite often, when I stand to speak here, there are times when all I see is my sin. And I can't do it. Why would you listen to me? The greatest sinner I know is me. I know the thousand thoughts that I have every day, which is not what I should have. But every week, God graciously whispers to me and says, but Sim, it's not your righteousness. It's my righteousness. Do you see the difference? I'll never be good enough. But he is. That's why Paul, here in Romans 6, says, Don't you know that you were baptized into his death? 
and we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Don't you know this? This is objective truth. This is not a subjective feeling. It's as objectively true that we have died with Christ and been buried with him. As it is that Christ died for us and was buried for us. Because we have been united with Christ in our standing before God. Therefore, it has nothing to do with how you feel. We don't believe that Jesus Christ was crucified and buried because we feel it. And we don't believe that I have been crucified with him and buried with him because I feel it. It is a fact. It is an accomplished fact. And there are many Christians who have come to the cross and they have understood the death of Christ. They have come to the cross and they have said, Lord, please forgive me. But they haven't come to the burial. They haven't said, I am buried with Christ. This will never play a role in my life again. This is not going to rise up and haunt me. This is not going to appeal to my conscientiousness and say, hey, you shouldn't feel good about anything anymore because you've messed up in such a bad way. Friends, when are we going to understand it's gone? But we just don't seem to believe it. We've committed sin in the past. We've confessed a thousand times. A day doesn't pass that we don't think back to a particular situation. But I want you to know that when you hear that voice condemning you, it's not God speaking to you. It's Satan. It's Satan. Because God tells us that in Jesus, we have the victory when we bury the sin with him and when we're raised to new life in him. Many of us make pathetic progress in our Christian lives because of this one problem. We just don't get it. We should be united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But although our sin has been taken from us, we have to let him carry it into the tomb where it is sealed. And for what purpose will some people seem to have the idea that they can say, phew, I'm off the hook. It's not what's being spoken of here. And as we're going to pick up next week, don't you know, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Listen to this. In order that, this is the purpose, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may now have a new life not the old life polished up a bit 
It's not just about going to heaven instead of hell. Do you not understand that? Some people think that that's all the Christian life is about. I'm going to go to heaven instead of hell. It's about a new life. It's not changing just your destination. It's changing the very composition of your life. Now, I am more convinced than ever of the importance of water baptism as I have begun to study these scriptures. I cannot accept the views of those who degrade it, minimize it, who try and chop it out of the scriptures. You see, it's the act of baptism that demonstrates all that we have spoken about, not just to ourselves, but to those around us. And not just to those around us, but to the powers of evil in this world too. And we're prepared to make a stand like Nicodemus did, like Joseph of Arimathea did. And we're going to say, the old has been buried. I have been raised to life in Christ Baptism by full immersion in water shows the gospel completely. This is what the Bible says. These are the words the scriptures have. The gospel is essentially about being reconciled to God. For those of us who are Christians, who have understood the cross, understood that he died for me and I can confess my sin and be forgiven. But perhaps you've never understood that. And so as we see a baptism, God willing, in a few weeks' time, we will be able to really understand what it means to bury your sin with Jesus and to stop it from being brought forward into the rest of your life. Are you still bogged down in the past? Are you bogged down with the traditions and all the things they told you from days gone by? The sin that you committed, the broken relationships, perhaps the abortion that took place, the drugs that have been used, the alcohol that has been used, the physical abuse that took place, the blasphemy that you treasured and enjoyed. Are you still bogged down by all of that? Well, you don't have to be because we bury our sin in the grave and any of you guys like fishing stop fishing